Jerry Georgiatis is the national coordinator of the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. He joins us now to discuss the continuing crisis of youth suicide, a scourge facing many people of many backgrounds, but which has had a particularly devastating impact on Aboriginal youth over a long period of time. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Ray. Now, recently came the news of yet another devastating story of suffering with a 15-year-old Aboriginal boy taking his own life. Uh, both his parents had died. He'd been left orphaned and was living in parlous conditions with up to 14 people sleeping in the same room. This is a terribly upsetting subject to talk about in many ways, yet it certainly needs to be spoken about. What does this dreadful incident tell us about the failings of the health system the housing system and so many other failings in our communities. It tells us of censorship by omission. We've bought into this mantra of do not describe the deficit to this cause, describe only the strength-based narrative. That's all well and good strength-based solutions, but we've got to have the deficit discourse. We've got to know what the grim reality is on the ground so we can galvanize change, so we can close the gaps and if we don't tell the stories of the lived experience of those lost, we won't know the stories and we won't galvanise governments to do more than what they should and also services that are funded to do what they're expected to do where they've got the capacity to do it. Yes, services are, many of them, are overstretched because they're underfunded, but by the same token, the deficit discourse will help uh, own that unmet need and galvanise the funding for them to create that greater capability, whether that be outreach, whether that be intense psychosocial support, whether that be uh, resource capability. Uh, what it tells us is that we don't know, uh, or most household Australians cannot comprehend or understand the magnitude of the suicide crisis for all Australians, which is increasing, and the magnitude, which is catastrophic for First Nations brothers and sisters, which is one in every 17 deaths a suicide. Now, obviously, the, the COVID uh, crisis and its attendant crises has affected the mental health of our youth. Uh, and again, with a particular focus on the crisis of mental health among young Aboriginal people, we know, for instance, there continues to be a woeful shortage of public housing uh, in the city. And at the same time, uh, at the same time, the, the moratorium on evictions has been lifted by the state government. Uh, there's also, as we know, a new mayoral administration, the city of Perth, where there is a high concentration of homeless people an administration that has to put it mildly shown itself to be unsympathetic to the poor the homeless those suffering in our community what what sort of impact is is the COVID crisis and, and in particular relation the the homelessness crisis that goes hand in hand with it what impact is that having on on suicide and, and suicide prevention in our it's communities an absolute intersection. it's an absolute intersection there's one word that you said unsympathetic it's actually the word should be cruel What's actually happening is cruel. We live in the wealthiest state in this country, which is the this country, the 12th biggest economy on the planet, and our jurisdiction, one of the wealthiest in the world. We run billions of dollars in budget surpluses. The nation is a trillionaire economy with a trillionaire GDP. We have the capacity to address all housing in this country, all 150,000 houses, and in Western Australia, all 16,000 social and public houses to be built, can be built, and we can do it in Western Australia in one term of government if there was a political will, if there was a dose 
we need more of a dose of political will to do what is actually uh, a can-do, and uh, the forward estimates can carry uh, the repayment of the seven or eight billion dollars expected uh, that it would cost to build 16,000 houses, and including uh, in that cost uh, the uh, assisted living needs of the one in four who will be housed that will need some form of psychosocial or clinical or non-clinical assistances uh, for a period of time uh, in their tenure, and some of them ongoing. And uh, and that will be no more than $8 billion. And uh, in, in the forward estimates over a couple of terms of government, that will be repaid. But in terms of the uh, burden of uh, disease and the burden of health and the impact on the uh, uh, on all our social systems, uh, that will be returned back many-fold in terms of uh, decreased costs if we go down that mantra of uh, what it costs society. We should be putting people first. The economy should be geared to, to society. In terms of uh, uh, houselessness and homelessness, transients or overcrowding, all forms of homelessness, street present homelessness being the worst, of course. It's dire and diabolical. It's a uh, constancy of trauma compounding. Uh, but we've just seen a young life lost. 15-year-old life lost, living in overcrowded circumstances, eight orphans, the Dickensian tale, the Dickensian tale, uh, Ray. Eight orphans lost, uh, eight children became orphans when they lost their mum and dad within a year and a half of each other, the mum to suicide after the dad's passing a year and a half prior, uh, and uh, the children were aged five to 18. Instead of the su services uh, supporting them, some did, but and those that did dropped off, and others that should have didn't. And our government should have stepped in with government-funded instruments of the state and actually supported them. But they were failed. This is Dickensian, that eight orphans would be left stranded. Four of them would finish up for long periods of time homeless, street present homeless, as I'm talking about. And three of them would finish up in and out of juvenile detention centres. One of them, at 12 years of age, had been in a juvenile detention centre 12 times, 12 times. And for crimes associated with surviving, stealing to eat, stealing to eat. These are the crimes of the poor. This is Dickensian stuff. This is just unbelievable that it went on. And now we've lost a 15-year-old uh, and it's the second suicide in the family and the third unnatural death in the family. Both parents, unnatural deaths, mum was suicide and the 15-year-old boy living in horrific overcrowded, overcrowding. And two of the boys, a 12-year-old and a 17-year-old walked into my office, my Perth office, in, uh, in January of 2020. They walked off the streets off the streets after being street homeless and on the streets of Perth. And where were the services for them? Where was the Department of Child Protection for them? Where was, you know, all the services that are funded for them? How could they have uh, uh, slipped through the cracks and fallen so deep into street present homeless as a 12-year-old child and in and out of Banksia uh, 12 times? And, and corrective services failed them too, releasing them back onto the streets, back into transients, back into homelessness, back into overcrowding, back into street present homelessness. Where were the services there for them? They walked into our house, into our offices in, the, in uh, January of 2020. We eventually housed them for the rest of last year. Uh, we had not met the boy who actually sadly passed. He had not reached out to us. We'd been working with three of the children. There was another one in South Australia uh, that, who is now in Western Australia because of her brother's passing. And, uh, we'll, and the funeral will be on May 21. Mm. So, and last year, last year, brother, uh, uh, if every, everybody will remember, an 11-year-old girl, Annalise, passed away to suicide on October 20, 2020 uh, in, in a regional town. She was airlifted after uh, her attempt uh, to Perth. She died in, in St. Charles Garden Hospital on, on the next day. And we were there and there were 100 people filling that uh, ward and the sea of grief, I'll, I'll never forget. They were also houseless. They were also homeless. 
they had also lost a father on April in April 14 of last year to suicide, two suicides in the family, and uh, both of them without the fulfillment of a home, both of them uh, without uh, a house of their own, both of them in some form of homelessness, and uh, and both of them uh, in, in overcrowding, which is a diabolical form of homelessness. Forty percent of our uh, homeless are in over uh, in overcrowded situations. And uh, seven to ten percent are in street present homelessness. So you know, uh, in the end, the, the intersection uh, is uh, indisputable. We're speaking to Jerry Georgiatos, who is the national coordinator of the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. Now, Jerry, you were saying earlier that clearly the thing to do is to provide social housing, to invest in social programs, and to really approach this head-on. Unfortunately, we live in you know an era of neoliberalism, and un- unfortunately we will see most likely the exact opposite of that and we have seen the exact opposite of that just recently we've seen uh, further sort of austerity measures from both the federal and state governments we've ha- seen uh, increased sort of demonization of people on welfare with uh, plans to introduce things such as a job in a job seeker uh, there's also been a, a tightening of, of conditions around people on, on work who are uh, currently on on the dole in terms of how many jobs they have to apply for and so forth and, and very much we're, we're likely to see further austerity measures in especially in relation to the covid pandemic and but why but why 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 should we see more austerity and i agree with you and that's what we will see when we live in the 13th or the 12th largest economy on the planet a trillionaire economy the asset wealth of this country is is beyond the imagination Mm. beyond the the capability of other nations on this planet we live in a state that returns billions in budget surplus we shouldn't be living in this austerity what you're actually describing is a neoliberal project yes and we have no political will from any party. Uh, we've got some parties that are on, uh, tinkering on the edges of the neoliberal project instead of going to the core and the heart of the neoliberal project and, and undermining that project which wants society to be geared to the economy and indenture us into wage slavery and commodify us as opposed to turning society and flipping it on its lid and having uh, the economy geared to society. Then we will go waste forward because if we can't triage base and fund first and foremost those most in need, then what's this all about? What sort of society do we have? I've worked in international aid for the most part of my life, long before uh, I met you, brother. I'm now 59 years of age, and uh, I can eight tenths of the world, mm. eight tenths of the world live on less than ten dollars a day. Eight out of ten people live on less than ten dollars a day. Uh, five out of ten people live on less than five dollars fifty a day, and uh, one in four live on less than three dollars thirty a day. And we've got six hundred million people on less than a dollar ninety a day. A dollar ninety a day, a dollar ninety a day being the prescription for what constitutes uh, extreme poverty. As if yeah. what I've just described is an extreme poverty for all those eight out of ten. And I guess just quickly, though, I was going to ask, returning to the the issue of suicide prevention in Indigenous communities here and in our in our communities in general in in Australia, when government won't act and when government is so caught up within the neoliberal ideological uh, framework that it is, what can we as as community members, as you know, just as human beings, as 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 organisers, as 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 people, do to support uh, specifically our Indigenous brothers and sisters in, in this context? Uh, and also keeping in mind that, you know, the, as I said, you know, the, the austerity measures to come, the attacks from, from governments and from the, the big end of town, that, that's likely to come. How, how can we uh, offer our support and our solidarity to, to change things for the better? Never give up on the truth. 
never buy into censorship by omission. You know, talk the deficit discourse, because that's what they don't want us to talk. The neoliberal project is what doesn't want us to talk about the deficit discourse. They want us to talk about strength-based discourses so we mask the grim reality, so we leave brothers and sisters behind. Don't accept the fact that we have to leave brothers and sisters behind. We've got to be out there conversing, talking, not, not conversation for the sake of conversation itself, but for the sake of awareness raising. The awareness raising is important. The educative is important. We've got to really pummel by principles of proportionality the deficit discourse. Otherwise, we won't be bringing it to the attention and to our consciousness to actually knock up the cultural shift. If, if we talk more about the deficit discourse, because as I said, that's eight out of 10 people around the world, or in Australia, it's 60% of our First Nations brothers and sisters. But let's also understand suicidality. Let's also understand suicidality. The lowest quintile of income is where the most significant proportion of suicides and suicidality are. And what takes your life above the poverty line is 20, 30, and 40 times more likely to take your life below the poverty line. That's where all brothers and sisters, First Nations, migrant born, and uh, other non-Indigenous. And let's remember that, you know, if we look at homelessness, for instance, one in five of all homeless individuals in this country are our First Nations brothers and sisters. One in three are the migrant born. Most people won't know that, but one in three are the migrant born. So the deficit discourse doesn't get put out enough and it's about principles of proportionality. Yes, solutions. Yes, ways forward. Yes, success stories. But let's not just uh, go hold strength space and no deficit discourse and no telling of the truth and buying into the censorship by mission. And you'll have your arguments against deficit discourse. But I've worked in international aid, I've seen the world, uh, I've worked in the suicide space, and I know that it's a poverty narrative. And unless we take out that poverty narrative to the world, we won't galvanize change. Nothing comes without knowledge. And, you know, we can go to Francis Bacon, knowledge is power and all that. Knowledge needs to be truth-based. And if we're not going to be truth-based, we'll at best always remain tinkerers on the edge of a neoliberal project instead of completely shattering that neoliberal project or making more inroads into it to actually help those most in need. And we're not going to take a triage-based approach and a needs-based approach to help those poorest amongst us uh, foremost. And who are we helping and who are we serving but our neoliberal masters and the hierarchy that they've created, brother?